We're live. And what would you say? Are you rich? We're going to talk about that today. I want to welcome those who are listening online. And uh, for the rest of us, your message notes are in your program. You can also access them on your, uh, in your smartphone, version Bible app. Uh, click more, click events, click circle drive. The notes will come up. You can save them. You can add to them. You can share them. So please make use of that. If you scroll down in your notes, there's parent cue. This is for all parents, grandparents, uncles and aunts. Gives you an opportunity to keep the conversation that our kids are having backstage uh, all week long. So you have more of an influence on your children than we do. So we want to give you resources to assist at. Please follow us on social media, Facebook and Instagram and so on. We'd love to uh, hear from you via those instruments as well. We're continuing today in the series called Impact YXE. And so uh, one of the goals of our church is to impact our community and to be involved in the life of our community because last week we said Christians don't really have a great reputation, do they? Sometimes um, people have rejected church and God because of us, something that we've taught or the way in which we lived. And so we want to talk about how we can impact our community. I've noticed that Canadians are not good at being rich. So I want to prepare us if that in, in case that ever happened to you. So uh, we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, perhaps in the Western world where the richest countries in all of the world. And I often pray that you would become massively wealthy. In fact, one of my prayers is, God, you own the cattle of a thousand hills. And would you give some of those hills to our people? Because I know if you were wealthy, you would use that wealth in a good way. So today, I want to talk to you about the side effects that wealth has. Because wealth has its side effects as well. The first side effect is that rich people live in denial. Rich people live in denial. This is really strange to me because tall people admit that they're tall, and short people admit that they're short. Athletic people admit they're athletic. Uh, you know, artsy people, you can just tell they're artsy just by the way they live. Introverts don't mind saying, you know, I'm an introvert, so don't talk to me. <laughs> Extroverts can't wait to tell you that they're an extrovert, right? So everybody admits it, but rich people don't admit that they're rich. They just don't. Gallup did a survey and asked, what is rich? The average person thought if you made $150,000 a year household income, you were rich. So they asked the people who do make a household income of $150,000 a year, they said, are you rich? And they said, no, we're not rich. So they surveyed those who made between thirty dollars and $35,000 a year, and they said, who is rich? And they said, 
people who make a household income of $75,000 a year. So they surveyed the people who made $75,000 a year, and guess what? They said they're not rich. Money Magazine, they surveyed their subscribers and asked, how much would you have to have in liquid or almost liquid assets before you would feel rich? The common uh, answer back from Money Magazine subscribers was $5 million. So people who have $1 million, you're not rich. $2 million, you're not rich. $3 million, you're not rich. $4 million, you're not rich. But if you, I bet if you ask people who had $5 million, they'd say, we're not rich because rich people are in denial. Now, here's the thing. Nobody's rich, but everybody knows somebody who is. This works because somewhere there's a magic line that when you cross it, when you cross the magic line, you're rich. But we don't know it, and we won't admit it. The fact is, <clears throat> here's a fact. If you make between forty-four and 45000 household income, it places you in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. So 99% of the people look at you and they say, you're rich, but we never feel rich, do we? So this morning, here's a news flash. We're rich. Everybody in this room, we're rich. But you don't feel it, do you? Scotiabank is right. You're richer than you, than you think. So, the side effect of being rich is you live in denial. Here's the second side effect. Rich people are plagued by discontentment. They're plagued by discontentment. You may not believe me, but check it out. The accumulation of stuff is like an appetite. And appetites are never fully satisfied. In fact, when you feed an appetite, it grows. You have to starve an appetite before it shrinks. Now, here is what we rich people do. Just a warning in case you ever become rich. This is what happens. Rich people get more stuff, and guess what happens? The appetite grows for more and more. The more pers a person has, the more he or she wants. So rich people invented a word called upgrade. You've heard of that word, right? Upgrade. Upgrade is when you have something that works perfectly well and you get another one like it, just a little newer, so you have two. All right? This is what rich people do. Because rich people have extra money. Here's another example. Rich people drive their car that works perfectly. They drive it to the dealer, they leave it there, they give the dealer more money, and they drive off with another car that works perfectly. This is what rich people do. <laughs> oh, boy. Now, you've heard of this, too. This is what rich people do. They go into the kitchen. It has countertops. It has stove and fridge and cabinets and a dishwasher. And they rip it all out. 
and they replace it with countertops and cabinets and a stove and fridge and a microwave. And here's another thing rich people do. They go to the mall, they're, they're standing in line outside the Apple store, and they're texting their friends saying, I'm getting a new iPhone. That's what rich people do. Now, I'm not condemning anybody because truth is, I've done the same thing. I've done the same thing, and I'm on a minister's salary. And people would look at me and say, you're rich. Here's another thing. Rich people stand in front of their clothes closet every day, and it's jammed with clothes, and they say, I have nothing to write. So what rich people do is they file through all of their clothes, and they take some out, and they bag it up, and they take it to charity, and they feel so good. And now they can fill up the gap in their clothes closet with new clothes. This is what rich people do. Rich people, their cars live in houses. Their garbage disposals eat so well they could feed a small village. And their appetite grows and grows and grows and grows. So again, this is just the side effect of being rich. And you might go say, whoa, I never want to become that way. Now, I hope you get rich. Really, I do pray that all of you become massively rich. But I want us to be really good at being rich. So the verse I want you to look at this morning is found in one of the letters that the apostle, the great apostle Paul wrote. He was writing to a guy by the name of Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 6, 17, it says this. Command those who are rich in this present world, and command really means to instruct. Now, what would you say to rich people? Of all of the things that you could say to them, what would you say? And this is what he says. Not to be arrogant. How did he know? How did he know that rich people have this problem? He's saying if you ever become rich, your inclination is towards arrogance. And we foster this notion in our generation. Have you ever been in a circle of, of friends and you're talking with them and there is a rich person in the center and when he talks, everybody listens. And we think, this guy's IQ is much higher than ours because he's rich. And 2,000 years ago, this was happening, and so Paul wrote, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, because we tend to value people and say things like, he has a ton of money. Ah, she's so wealthy. Why do we say that? They carry it. They wear it. There's something about it that you know. And Paul says when you cross that imaginary line and you become rich and you have more than you need and other people uh, know it, don't let it go to your head. And then in verse 17 he says, don't be arrogant nor put your hope in wealth which is so uncertain. Now here's the thing. 
Here's what happens when you're rich. It is not a decision, but your lifestyle begins to increase and your hope migrates towards your, the accumulation of your wealth. And he says, warn those Christians to not let their hope migrate from their stuff or from God to their stuff, from the person to your finances. The writer of Proverbs says it this way. Proverbs 18.11 The wealth of the rich is the fortified city. Now, I love this because they imagine something that's not true. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. And so hope begins to migrate to your wealth and you begin to think if you could ever accumulate, if you could save enough, your walls would be so safe and it would protect your, your children and your grandchildren. And the wall of wealth, you think, is unscalable. And so when your wealth is your safety, there can be a shift from someone to something. And I don't want that to happen to you when you become rich. So to gain perspective, here, here is a question that I would like to ask everyone this morning. You don't have to admit the answer. But how much money would you need to secure your future against all imaginable eventuality? How much? How much would you need before you could be fearless and golden and nothing could touch, touch you? How much would you need to secure your, your children and grandchildren? And the answer is the same for everybody in the room. The answer is more than you currently have. Isn't that true? More than you currently have. The answer will always be more than you currently have. And as you increase wealth, your hope migrates with your income. And poor people never place their hope in wealth as they think there's no point to saving. Really? What is my 20 bucks going to do for my future? So they give it away. But wealthy people begin to hold on to it. And they begin to hoard. And they, they think there will never be enough. You might give a little here and you might give it a little there. People will whine and dine you and tend to you tend to give some money to show it off, but the context of the wealth, in the context of your wealth, really you're not generous. And the fact is that no matter how much you have, your needs will be insatiable. What tends to happen is you become wealthier, your hands begin to close around what you have, and then you don't become a good wealthy person. Your heart has begun to migrate and your hope begins to shift to your wealth. So Paul goes on in verse 17 where he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in their wealth, which is so uncertain, but to place your hope in God. He says, place your hope in God. And the reason that people like me talk about money so often is because Jesus did. You read through the New Testament and the Gospels, Jesus hardly mentions hell, but he's talking about money all the time. Why is that? The chief competitor of your heart 
the chief competitor to your heavenly father is not Satan. It's not even Halloween. It is money. And that's where the struggle happens in every person's life as we think about it. So Jesus would say, where your treasure is, your heart is. Wherever you give to, your interest goes there. Whatever you invest in, you begin to look at. If you have investments in the stock market, you're, you're watching the paper to see what happened to your stock. Note to myself, don't look at the stock market lately. This is going down. But whatever we invest in, our heart moves towards that. So warning, if your hope has drifted and migrated to stuff or to your wealth, it is, and if it is not confronted, here is what happens. Wealth becomes a substitute for God. And Jesus said it this way, you cannot serve two masters. You will either serve God or money. It's an interesting dichotomy be, that Jesus pointed out. Why didn't he say God or Satan? But he says God or money. Because Jesus knew. He knew that this is the tension that each one of us lives with. So the writer of Proverbs says, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I would have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. When Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, the one phrase that he delivered was, Give us this day our daily bread. What he was teaching his disciples in prayer was, we need to trust God for each day that he would be the provider, that he would give the needs that we have, that he would be the source of our supply. And so he prays, give us this day our daily bread. The writer to the Proverbs knew the dangers of wealth and that it eventually can mi misplace trust in God and become a substitute for God. Years ago when our children were little and we went to the doctor and the doctor prescribed some medications and I went to the pharmacy and didn't have enough money, so I pulled out my Visa card. And, and as I was walking out the pharmacy that day, it was like the Holy Spirit was saying to me, who do you trust? Am I the source of your healing? Am I the source of your supply? Or is it in the MasterCard or the Visa? Who is? my source of supply. So I want you to answer this question honestly this morning. Which statement gives you the most anxiety? Which of these 
two statements that we're going to put up on the screen for you. The first one is, there is no God. When you die, it's lights out. You don't see your family again. There's no purpose and meaning to life. There's no future life. There's no God. Or the second statement, you have no money. It's all gone, and you can't get it back. Which statement creates more anxiety in your heart? Honestly. Now, let me give you a context. You're in the hospital, and you're hooked up to all those machines, the prognosis is not that great. There's zero chance of recovery. And the doctor comes in and says, we're just going to keep you comfortable. There's no opportunity for future life. And most of us would say this morning, I think this would bother me. And now I have a different perspective on life because I don't have much time. And now all that I've accumulated has no meaning. And suddenly we think about life after life and we think about eternity and we think, is there a God? And where will I spend my eternity? And will I see my loved ones again? And then God becomes everything in our life. And all of your trust in those moments comes towards God because you have no control of the future. None. Paul goes on and he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. For our enjoyment. You see, when we trust God, it's not that he wants to take all the joy from our life. He doesn't want to put us in a straitjacket and we can't have any joy or fun. But he just wants us to trust him and for him to be the source of life. And Paul accents the question, why would you place your hope in the provision when you have the opportunity to put your hope in the provider who richly provides in this life and in the one to come? And so, let's say this together. Even if you're not a church person, let's say this together. I will not place my hope in riches, but in Him who richly provides. That was pretty lame, really. All right, ready? I will not place my hope in riches, but in Him who richly provides. I will not place my hope in riches, but in Him who richly provides. What if this echoed through our minds day by day, moment by moment? Would we not live different? Wouldn't we have a different perspective on life? Wouldn't it be more than about paying bills and acquiring more things and getting deeper in debt and having to work our Freedom 95 plan because of all we spent? Paul says, don't be arrogant. Put your hope, don't put your hope in wealth, but put your hope in God. 
but you're hoping God. Here's what I know about human nature. As we increase in wealth, our spending increases. I don't know if you know the name Ron Blue. He was, he was a money consultant and he had an organization that helped people to get out of debt and to do future planning and make sure you had enough in your savings account to survive any emergency and so on. And he began in, in Atlanta and his first client made $25,000. And he went through all of his finances, all of his payments, all of his housing costs and so on. And, and Ron concluded that you could not afford to live in Atlanta on $25,000. His next client made $80,000. And he went through all of his expenses, his housing, his commitments, and he concluded that you cannot survive in Atlanta on $80,000. His next client made a million dollars a year. He went through all of his expenses, all of his commitments, all of his housing costs, and so on, and he concluded you cannot live in Atlanta City on a million dollars a year. But what he really concluded was People tend to spend 102% of their income. And that's why we don't feel rich. And in the coming weeks, I want to talk about how it is that we can get out of the mess that we are in and how we can feel as wealthy as we really are. Because when we live in America, when we live in Canada, we are in the top 1% of wealth in the whole world. And I have learned over time that God gives wealth to people for a reason and for a purpose. And it's not just for us. He gives to us so that we can give to others. And one of the ways that we foster trust in God instead of stuff is we share our wealth. And many in this place have learned the discipline of giving regularly to God's work because you are good, wealthy people. And you want your life to count, and you want to leave a legacy, and you want to leave an impact, and you want to trust God. And when we trust God, God gives joy to every person. So, for most of us, we feel we're not rich yet. But some of us feel that our hope is migrating. And we got the raise, we got the promotion, and you want to secure the money, and you want to secure the raise. And along with that, we can become ungrateful, and we feel entitled. We're entitled North Americans. This is not a good way to live. You slowly wrap your fingers around everything, and you feel you have to save, and you have to hold on, and what if, and what if, and what if. You know what? Some of you make twice the amount that your parents made. 
in their lifetime. More than you ever thought you would make. But inside you feel a shift. Your hope is shifting. So next week we're going to talk on how to prevent that shift. But as a church, even as a church, all the money that comes into the church, we don't use it only for our benefit. We give away. We give a portion to our partners in the community and our partners in the world. Because, because we believe that when we share, we make an impact. Today, I've invited the executive director of Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Kim. Kim is coming to the platform right now. Kim Majeski, would you give her a warm welcome to Circle Drive Church? Welcome, Kim. Good to have you here. So tell us, what does Big Brothers, Big Sisters do in the community? Okay, well, we are, it's our vision at Big Brothers, Big Sisters that every child or youth in our community that needs a mentor has a mentor, and we do that through a number of different programs, but I want to talk really quickly about what that means to youth. So if you're a research kind of person and you like research, I challenge you to Google research and youth mentorship, and you'll get all sorts of research, but I'd like to do just a really quick local research. And you don't have to go fast okay. because <laughs> I did something really unusual here. I, w I stopped early so we can talk right. longer. So I have okay. lots of time, half yeah. hour or so? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So some local research. So think about somebody that was a mentor in your life. So who in, in the uh, community this morning has had a mentor in their life? Think about that person. So we got lots of hands going up. So when you think about that person, why, do, why are they a mentor? Why do, why do you identify them as a mentor? Probably because they came into your life and they made a difference and they made a change for you and that's how you identified them as a mentor. So let me ask you another question. Who were they? Were they someone like you or I? Were they a teacher, a coach, an aunt or uncle or somebody in your family? So someone just every day that you happen to bump into. So I think we've learned, so just through that little simple research that we just did, we learned two things. First, we learned that mentorship works because all of you that raised your hand and identified that you had a mentor in your life, they made a change. So they helped you see something different They came into your life and you were set on a different path because of them coming into your life. The second thing we learned is that anyone can be a mentor. So that's what the kids in our community need right now is mentorship. I do want to tell you one, about one study, and that was Harvard Center, for the Re Center of the Research for Child. They found that for children and youth that are facing barriers, okay, so we know many children and youth are facing barriers in our community today. For children and youth that are facing barriers, the thing that helps them have a different future and a different path is one caring, supportive adult. So we think about that. If that's all it takes for children and youth facing barriers to transition in a healthy way from childhood to adulthood is one caring, supportive adult. Sounds pretty attainable, doesn't it? So our vision of having a child or having a mentor for every child and youth in our community really, really is a possibility. We do that through community partners. And Circle Drive Alliance is one of those community partners that's helping us see that vision. 
So sometimes people ask me is how is that change possible? How do we take a look at somebody that's really facing a lot of barriers and, and kids in our community have identified We've, we've gone out, we've gone to kids in our core neighborhood. That the kids that are facing the biggest barriers in our community, we've asked them, what's it, what's it gonna make, what's it gonna take to make a difference? Kids in our community have identified that we need more adult allies. It's a myth that, to think that youth in our community wanna push adults out of their life. It's just not true. What they want is that one caring, supportive adult that is non-judgmental. And that's the key, somebody that meets them where they're at. Someone that meets them where they're at and helps them see a different path for their future. So we know that mentorship changes self-esteem. Self-esteem creates resilience. Resilience creates opportunity. Opportunity creates hope. And hope creates change. It's a chain reaction that really starts with one caring, supportive adult. So people ask me, how can I help? How can we, how can we help Big Brothers Big Sisters? You guys are already doing it, it's fantastic. Your presence is known in our, in our organization. You guys have done a lot for us and, and we appreciate that. But as individuals, you can become a mentor. You can, some people don't have time, so they can't become a mentor. You can support us financially. So some people have the capacity to do that, so you can support us financially. If you can't do either of those two things, you might know somebody in your circle of friends that would make a great mentor and refer them to our organization to be a mentor. You may know somebody that can contribute financially, a business, a corporation, an individual that can help out the organization. You can send them our way. And if you can't do any of those things, that's okay, because what you can do is you can be a mentor. We already know, we identified that everybody in this room has the ca capacity to be a mentor. So what you can do is you can look around you. Where are the places where you come in contact with children and youth? Is it through church? Is it through your kids? Is it through their friends or their school? Where can you be a mentor to a child in our community? Because we can change our community through mentorship. Right. So thank you. Kim, what does a mentor do? Sometimes uh, that's a mental block for us. It, it sounds like a formal thing that I need training and I don't feel adequate and I can't do that. What does, what is a, give me a picture of what does a mentor do? What does that look like? Okay. Let's equate it to friendship. So we all have friends, and we all support our friends, and the reason why we keep people close to us and our friends is because they make us feel great. And so when you think about mentorship, I'll think about it in the context of friendship. If I can be a great friend to somebody and I can care about them, then I can be a mentor. So a lot of people do think it. Mentorship means I need to be perfect. We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for people that have maybe been through some challenges in their life and saw it through and gone on the other side. Those are the kinds of people that we want to put in front of kids. We want kids to see that, yeah, you, we have challenges in life, but we, you can overcome those. And really it is just about being a supportive friend, um, somebody, and I think that's really key is that non-judgmental meeting kids where they're at. Mm -hmm. We were at a meeting at White Buffalo, at organization, what is it? YXEU speaks the youth strategy for Saskatoon. Yep. And one of the critical pieces was mentorship. Why is that? Like youth at risk. Um, there, why? Yeah. It, you know, it, I talked about barriers and those, all those high risk factors. And I don't have to list them all because we know what all the barriers are facing kids in our community. But really what it is is not focusing on those barriers, it's focusing on potential. 
and we know that we're all equal and we all have potential. And so if we start to focus on potential, we know that every youth has the capacity to succeed and it really is through that support. And kids have said that, you know, it's, it's adult allies that are gonna help me transition from uh, the life of the barriers that I have to a life where I thrive. Mm -hmm. uh, what uh, does an ongoing partnership with Circle Drive mean to Big Brothers Big Sisters? Ongoing partnership is the key word. It's ongoing. This work is always there, right? Year over year over year, we're serving more kids. And as kids come and go in the programs and mature out, there will always be kids coming in. You know, as our community grows, which you know it's on a path of growth, more kids are coming in. And so we always need more mentors. We always need more financial resources. When we make a match with the youth, um, that match continues to go on and it still takes financial resources. We have a staff team of professionals that uh, support matches and so that costs money. So ongoing partnership is critical. It's, it's great when people do one-time gifts, but the support that you guys have given us year over year really does make a difference. Yep. Our children have kind of led the way in this. They've, uh, our camps and so on, put together treat bags and what does that mean? for your organization? Yeah, so the treat bags are a lot of fun because what we get to do is the way in which you've blessed us with the treat bags is we get to take those to the kids in our school-based programming. And we're talking about, um, you know, most of the schools that we work with are the community schools and kids that this might be one of the only gifts that they get at Christmas time is this treat bag. And it's as simple as it seems, the kids light up when we bring those treat bags around to our elementary schools and they look forward to it year over year. So thank you for that. Thank you, Kim, for the work that you do in our community. We bless you and God bless you. And thank you from all of us at Circle Drive for what your, you and your staff do for, through Big Brothers Big Sisters. Thank well, you. Thank you. It's a partnership, so I appreciate it. Great. Thank you. I know there are some of you who are youth mentors, uh, a big brother or a big sister in the community. I say thank you to you. And this is what it means to be rich. It means that we share not just our wealth, but our time. It's a posture. We trust God. We invest in others for all of the potential that is there in our communities.